Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we are afforded the opportunity to, to reflect into this very rich subject matter that we call theology of the body. More specifically, what we are about here is taking a look at and reflecting with Christopher West's work, The Love That Satisfies, which again takes up the first half of Benedict's first encyclical, God is Love, where there he explores the relationship between eros and agape. And just by way of a refresher course, what do we intend to mean when we use those words, right? Well, the ancient Greeks called the love between the sexes eros, huh? From which we derive the term erotic. Different historical and cultural contexts have supplied eros with various shades of meaning. I'm sure if you hear that word, you might think one thing or another. Certainly in our day, that which is erotic has all but become synonymous with that which is pornographic, huh? And as a result, many Christians seem to think the only proper response to eros is to what? Avoid it, repress it, and stamp it out in favor of this uh, higher or more spiritual love. But this most certainly is not the approach that Benedict XVI took in his work, God is Love, huh? Rather than surrendering Eros to its many distortions, Benedict XVI reclaims Eros by demonstrating its integral and tragically forgotten, in many ways, relationship with agape. So in Christian usage, the Greek term agape comes to describe what but the self emptying, sacrificial love revealed in Jesus Christ. The love that we are thinking about these days, my friends, as we get closer and closer to Good Friday, literally hours away if you are tuning in here Thursday night. 2,000 years ago, Christianity, for all intents and purposes, produced a revolution of love in the social order. Not because it rejected eros, in favor of agape, but because it purified and infused eros with agape. From the earliest days of Christianity, it was St. Paul who helped men and women understand that sexual union was what? A great mystery that referred to Christ's love for the church. Husbands were to love their wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, St. Paul taught that eros was meant to express agape. And that, in so many words, is what theology of the body is about. And I I don't care how old you are. You know, I had someone come up to me about a month ago after I gave a, a talk at a parish. And he said, you know, I'm 73 years old and I'm still struggling with eros. And uh, we talked about the importance of staying active. We talked about how agape infuses eros with life-giving power. Theology of the body really is a study for all ages. And so here we are this evening talking the stuff of Theology of the Body. We are in chapter 8 of Christopher West's work uh, titled Union and Eucharist, page 127. If you have your books, you can pull them out now. 
And I will go ahead and read excerpt number 50. And again, by that I mean um, the 50th quote that Christopher West is reflecting upon from Benedict's work, God is Love. So Benedict's words read as follows. The sacramental mysticism, grounded in God's condescension towards us, operates at a radically different level and lifts us to far greater heights than anything that any human mystical elevation could ever accomplish. Or maybe we would be well served to define a couple terms here. What does the word mysticism mean? Well, this is actually a word that I've been spending a great deal of time with in other nights. This is a word, mysticism or mystical theology, that speaks to these religious encounters we have, encounters with the supernatural, with the superordinary, within the ordinary, and out from these encounters, how we have a keen conviction that what belongs to what is beautiful, that what belongs to what is great, belongs to the supernatural, belongs to the stuff of God. And then one begins to seek God in the ordinary. And so our mystical encounters begin to form and inform our ordinary life. And how about condescension? This essentially is God coming down to man. So two simple definitions to some pretty difficult words there. Anyhow, what can we say in response to this? Well, as Christopher West makes note, men and women of all cultures huh, <laughs> have sought through various means of meditation, self-discipline, and innumerable other religious practices to encounter the transcendent, to experience what some have called mystical elevation. And while these efforts can bear fruit in some limited ways, the human being simply cannot cross that infinite abyss, that chasm between earth and heaven to grasp God. The only way we can possibly reach the fulfillment for which we long, that is divine life in God, is if God empties himself and crosses that abyss himself, descending from heaven to earth to reveal himself to us and offer himself to us. We believe in our faith that he has. And it's called the gospel. It's called the good news, the evangelion, the transforming message. It's what we call Christianity. No other religion makes the same claims. No other religion claims that great cry, Abba, Father. No other religion claims relationship, that radical relationship with the infinite, with the divine, as Christianity does. What's that great passage from 2 Peter 1, 4? that we are called to participate in the very divine life of God, and this is what we actually do in the sacrament of baptism. We are given the gifts and the virtues of faith, hope, and love to actually share in His very life, to actually share in His goodness, in His gratuity, in His grace. He gives us His life-giving properties. I love the image. It is one of my favorite images of how grace is like sap, huh? What is sap? Sap is what contains what from the tree? Water, hormones, nutrients, all of those life-giving properties from the tree. And so sap is like grace in this way because grace gives us those spiritual nutrients, huh? Grace gives us the life-giving property that belongs to God, his very life-giving love. Wow, I mean, this is the stuff of Christianity. So God descends that we might ascend, huh? And this is very important because we forget 
that before we knock on God's door, he has already knocked on ours. And this is uh, what Benedict XVI is talking about, and certainly this is what encircles the reflections of Christopher West. Now, let us turn to the first paragraph in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, because for our discussions, it is very important. The opening paragraph of the Catechism says this, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him, that is, allow him to share in his own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. There we see, my friends, God's condescension toward us. And as the catechism goes on to explain, God also calls man to seek him. There we see man's aspiration for God. Man's searching for God, what we properly call eros, right, can reach certain levels of elevation, but it can never afford what God's searching for man can, and that we call agape. Agape love is descending. Eros is ascending. The two operate, as Benedict XVI notes, at radically different levels. Still, as we have seen from one week to the next, there is a profound meeting in God's condescension and our aspirations of God's descending love and man's ascending love, our reaching up and his reaching down. There is a profound meaning between agape and eros, and in this meeting, this embrace of the divine and the human, we experience, well, what have we already talked about? Ecstatic bliss, beatitude, the happiness for which God created us. God does not hoard his glory, as we have already seen. God is gift, which is to say God is love. Huh? What is love? To love is to will the good of the other. It is to turn ourselves over as a gift. To say God is love is to say God is gift. And so when we enter into the God who is love, we enter into his giftedness. This is why St. Thomas Aquinas says that our good acts is God crowning his own gifts. We are simply sharing in his love and at the same time sharing in his giftedness. Mm, Amen. Okay, turning to excerpt 51, this is Benedict XVI. As St. Paul says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Union with Christ is also union with all those to whom he gives himself. I cannot possess Christ just for myself. I can belong to him only in union with all those who have become or who will become his own. I absolutely love this excerpt. It's probably one of my favorites. You know, we read in Genesis 2.18, what? It is not good that man should be alone. In the beginning, in this solitude, Adam discovered a twofold vocation, love of God and love of neighbor. From among all the living creatures of the visible world, Adam alone was called to live in a personal relationship of love and communion with his creator. Remember, the Trinity is this perfect eternal exchange of love. It is an eternal communion of love. Okay, that being said, indeed, 
only the human being had the capacity for such a relationship. But Adam, having been inspired, or as Christopher West makes note, inbreathed, right, <laughs> with divine love, experienced an explicit need to share that love with another like him. I really do just love that image that we have from the book of Genesis when God is breathing life into Adam. The, the image there is a muzzle, huh? that close, intimate encounter. I love it. So we read in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. We are made to see then that this union in one body, not only foreshadows Christ's union with the church, it also foreshadows the union of all the members of the church who form, as 1 Corinthians 10, 17 reminds us, the one body of Christ. In other words, the holy communion of spouses in Genesis is a foreshadowing of the holy communion of the Eucharist. And the Eucharist establishes us not only in union with Christ, remember what we talked about last week, that when we receive the Eucharist, Christ enters into this very bridal union with our souls. We spent a great deal of last week talking about the importance of the physical imagery that is so provocative in the Old Testament, and why does God speak in these terms of bride and bridegroom and husband and wife, most notably in the Song of Songs, that we might have an image that would evangelize our imagination so as to better understand the radical relationship that God seeks with us and in us, most especially in the Eucharist. So, as the Eucharist establishes us in union with Christ, it also draws us into union with one another. As Benedict XVI expresses it, union with Christ is also union with all those to whom he gives himself. Oh, by the way, this is what we also call solidarity, right? This great uh, word and virtue that John Paul II championed during his pontificate, this word that we can also define as civic friendship, that we are in union with one another, that we are willing to lay our lives down for one another. We are in solidarity with one another, a very important word. So the Eucharist then fulfills both dimensions of Adam's original vocation, love of God and love of neighbor. This twofold vocation that I have spent so much time talking about, the in God for other moment, the gift and the task, the coming to know him so as to make him known, the new identity, new goal. What we're talking about right now is really the essence of every Christian faith. God first and out from that neighbor. Is this not what comes to us from the Ten Commandments to the Beatitudes to the Two Great Commandments? God first, neighbor second. That being said, there are stumbling blocks that get in the way, huh, from this great vocation. Here on earth, we need to resist and overcome those forces that prevent us from realizing that union in its fullness, huh? In eternity, all will be consummated, huh? All the members of Christ, the communion of saints, will live in this perfect unity of one body. And the Catechism speaks to this beautifully in paragraph 1045. It reads as follows, For man, this consummation will be the final realization of the unity of the human race, which God willed from creation. Those who are united with Christ 
will form the community of the redeemed, the holy city of God, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. As Christopher West puts it, we will know all and be known by all. We will see all and be seen by all. And God will be all in all. So let us participate now. (laughs) This is the great challenge that is before us. There is no need to wait. If we live out faithfully the Beatitudes, as the Beatitudes themselves remind us, remember what the word blessed means. The word blessed comes from the Greek makarios, which means to be in favorable standing with God, to live in God's joy, essentially. So let's take up the Beatitudes and share in this wonder and beauty that paragraph 1045 speaks to. All right, let's go to excerpt 52 here. These are the words of Benedict XVI. Communion draws me out of myself towards him, and thus also towards unity with all Christians. We become one body, completely joined in a single existence. Love of God and love of neighbor are now truly united. God incarnate draws us all to himself. We can thus understand how agape also became a term for the Eucharist. As the Catechism puts it, all men are called to the same end, God himself. Love of neighbor is inseparable from love for God. The Catechism elsewhere says that the communion of the Holy Trinity is the source and criterion of truth in every relationship. It is lived out in prayer, above all, in the Eucharist. I mean, these are remarkable statements. The unity of men and women, not just in marriage, but in all human relationships, from the local to the global level, is meant to resemble, in a way, the unity found in the Trinity. In fact, we could say that the communion of the Trinity is the model and measure of all truth, of truth in all human relationships, so the Christian faith professes. Remember what we have talked about before as it relates to love itself. Again, agape is this divine, sacrificial love, huh? This is the love that we are called to enter into, and in doing so, this is how we share in God's love. Christopher West puts it this way, Human beings are created to live as the Holy Trinity lives, in a life of happiness and bliss, a life of ever-exchanging love, a life of perfect unity that does not blur the beautiful distinction of each person. We have talked in the past about this unrepeatable gift that is within each and every one of us. Every single human person is created in the image and likeness of God, and at the same time, holds within themselves a unique character that reflects God, that is unrepeatable. And in light of this, when each person is the person that they are called to be, the best version of who God is calling them to be, they intone the body of Christ with a certain beauty, a beauty that has never been seen before. And this is exciting, my friends, when you really start thinking about this, because all of us want to be original, All of us want to be unique. Well, we are. I know culture says, do it this one way. And we get wrapped up in keeping up with the Joneses that we all begin to kind of just blend in. Well, what is holiness? Holiness literally means to be set apart. Holiness means then to realize your uniqueness, your unrepeatable character. 
Because when you do, you will be set apart. You will be seen for who you are as created in the image and likeness of God. This is the good news, huh? That when we enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we are transformed into his likeness, yes, and at the same time, the uniqueness of our beauty is discovered. This is exciting news. This ought to be the reason why we wake up in the morning, huh? To discover the beauty of the vocation that lies within each and every one of us. And in so doing, discover the beauty of who you are. This indeed is a most exciting thing. So, in Christ, we become one body, completely joined in a single existence, as Benedict says. But just as three persons in God retain their own identities, that deep organic unity does not cancel out our individuality. It perfects it and makes it shine forth in all its brilliance. In John Paul II's original work in Theology of the Body, he coins a phrase, a very explicit phrase to, to draw this out. Perfect intersubjectivity of all. Say that three times fast. That is John Paul II's phrase to speak of this brilliance, to speak of this shining forth. This is what he has to say. The human race is destined to live in a perfect intersubjectivity of all, and here's how he defines it, that will not absorb man's personal subjectivity, who we are, but quite on the contrary, will make it emerge in an incomparably greater and fuller measure. This is what I've been talking about and what Christopher West reflects upon here. So to speak of subjectivity here means to speak of the mystery of the human person in all its interior depth. So the human being is not merely an object in the world. He is a subject, a self-determining agent with inalienable dignity, with the dignity that rightfully belongs to them. As subjects, as persons, we are called to use our self-determination to enter into this loving relationship with others. We are called to live in communion with other persons, or as John Paul II says it, this intersubjectivity. In this way, we come to realize the Trinitarian order in the created world of persons. Wow, is this rich. By the way, this subject matter right now really drives John Paul II's uh, work, uh, The Splendor of Truth, where he gets into the dignity of the human person. And so this really lays the foundation for that. I mean, how important is it to understand the importance of our individuality, our unrepeatable character that comes from God? Huh? And the key phrase there, comes from God. Huh? We can only discover this to the degree that we enter into God. So when we focus on the human subject without recognizing his call to communion with others, we end up with what? individualism, or as John Paul II speaks to it, subjectivism. And this is such as the case when we cut off eros from agape, right? I mean, erotic love cut off from divine love is what? It's not interested in the sacrifices required of living in communion with others. Left to itself, as we've been talking about a great deal, 
Eros is interested only in its own subjective pleasure. It is agape, poured out in the Eucharist, that draws me out of myself, as Benedict XVI says. It is agape, revealed and poured out superabundantly in Christ's body, that draws us out of ourselves because God incarnate draws us all to himself. This is the kind of thing, my dear friends, that we need to be thinking about come Good Friday. When we behold God incarnate, when we behold the divine mystery of love revealed through his body, and this is what we call theology of the body, we are drawn to the beauty that is our very life, our very reason for existence, the satisfaction of every last longing and desire. What is that passage from John 12, 32? I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And certainly, this is what he does in the Eucharist, huh? So we drop down to this last excerpt, where Benedict XVI says simply, in the Eucharist, God's own agape comes to us bodily. And so we ask, how can this be? How can God, who is pure spirit, communicate his sacrificial agape love to us bodily? He can do so in Jesus Christ, because for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, as Colossians 2.9 reminds us. It claims that God has made himself visible in the flesh. It claims that the flesh is the hinge of salvation. We believe in God who is creator of the flesh. We believe in the word made flesh in order to redeem the flesh. We believe in the resurrection of the flesh, the fulfillment of both the creation and the redemption of the flesh. Praise be to God for the flesh, for human flesh, for male and female flesh, and for the two becoming one flesh. If this may strike you as an overemphasis on the flesh, let us be reminded of the crucifix because it is in turning over his entire flesh. Remember how we've spoken to this in the past. He just doesn't give a drop of blood or a little bit of his flesh. He gives all five and a half, six quarts of blood and all of his flesh that indeed we might enter into this most provocative relationship that he calls us to enter into. My dear friends, infuse Eros with agape and discover the beauty of and the wonder that you are. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.